everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Today, I'm going to be diving into the horrors of haunted houses, including haunted attraction accidents that have occurred, as well as some very, very questionable haunted attractions that are out there. I think a year or so ago, I did a whole episode on the extreme haunt known as McCamey Manor, which is honestly just mind-blowing what participants willingly go through at that particular haunt. But today I'm going to be focusing on death and disaster that has occurred in haunted attractions. And the two extreme haunts I'm going to be covering today are the Colt and the Penhurst Asylum. I don't know about you, but there's just something about October that puts me in a spooky state of mind. Couple that with the spookiness of this studio, and I've just got chills running up and down my spine the entire time I'm in here. For me, fall, and especially the time around Halloween, is my favorite time of the year. There's just something about the air. It's crisp, it's cool, it's cold sometimes. The leaves falling, the more overcast skies, just something about it that puts you into that Halloween spirit. So I'm very excited to bring you some more Halloween-centric content over the next two weeks. But let's go ahead and jump right into some of the worst accidents that have occurred in haunted houses. I often have wondered to myself, how many times do accidents happen? Because when you're walking through many of these haunted houses, obviously you're being jump-scared and you're just high anxiety the whole time. So accidents are bound to happen in an environment like this. And some of the accidents that occur aren't necessarily fatal, but they are still downright terrifying. One woman got a first-hand experience at a stranger disguising themselves as part of the show. Tanya Greenfield was 29 years old when she visited the Nashville Nightmare Haunted House on October 5th, 2018. The attractions have everything from demonic clowns to genetically mutated aliens. Staff get dressed in costume and stay in character almost the entire time. But when a strange man approached Tanya and her friends, he had a knife. And they just thought, well, this has got to be part of the show. The man asked Tanya if her friend James was bothering her. She figured that, you know, this is just part of the act. So she decided to play along with him. So she said yes. The strange man then handed over a knife that looked like a prop knife. And he said, well, here, stab him. So playfully, she grabbed the blade by the handle, swung it, and stabbed her friend in the shoulder. At first, she thought it was a retractable prop knife, but then she felt the knife sink into his skin, carving into his muscle tissue. He then screamed, and when she pulled the knife away, dark blood began gushing from the wound. Meanwhile, this random guy that they thought was a staff member had just disappeared into the dark. Tanya and her friend's fun that evening ended as they had to rush James to the closest hospital and luckily he survived the injury but still no one knows who this strange man was plus to even get into Nashville nightmare guests have to pass through a security gate with metal detectors so the knife must have been smuggled inside the man also used the cover of being an actor to confuse his victims and they thought they were playing along with somebody a part of this haunted attraction but that just wasn't the case and Tanya was lucky enough that she didn't pretend to stab her friend in the neck or the chest, can you imagine? Or this story might have ended with her being criminally charged with manslaughter. There have been times, though, 
and haunted house attractions where your time ends in death. This was the case for Christian Benji. In October 2014, she visited the park with dozens of family and friends when they decided to go into one of the park's haunted houses. As many of us know from personal experience, this particular house was filled with commotion and jump scares. Actors in full costumes jumped out for cheap scares, and each room was decorated with filth and decay. Not even halfway through the house, Christian suddenly collapsed to the floor. Other guests didn't know what had happened, they just thought a jump scare you know, caused her to faint. But many of her close family members immediately knew what was going on. When friends and family rushed over to her, they checked her pulse, but there was nothing. Her heart had literally stopped, and she had passed. Sadly, one reason for this happening may have been because Christian had been born with a congenital disability. She actually only had one lung, and a part of her heart was enlarged. As one of the investigators at the coroner's office put it, she had a compromised heart. Many of the family members understood it was only a matter of time, but they didn't think that death would come when they were just having fun in a haunted house. She had died almost instantly, and many wonder if the fear caused an elevated heart rate in the haunted house. And maybe that was just too much for her. After investigators looked into it, no injury or accident had occurred. For Christian, her heart had just given out. At the time of her passing, Christian was with her family and friends, and they had just gone out, hoping to have a night of fun and scares. But sadly, it ended in tragedy. On October 24th, 1997, out in East Granby, Connecticut, thousands of people visited the nightmare at Floydville Road. It was prime time Halloween season, and locals were ready to get scared, while also raising money for local emergency volunteers. The irony was that emergency services wouldn't be able to help a dying woman on the side of the road that night. Dozens of people passed by a woman covered in blood screaming for help inside the haunted attraction grounds. People that were there just thought it was part of the Halloween gags going on throughout the park. None of them realized that the woman wasn't an actor, and she was actually dying. Her name was Kimberly. Katrinos, and she was the victim of a hit and run actually. One man named Gail Fulton passed by the woman. She crawled on the ground and she reached up her hand towards him as a sign for help, but he just kept on walking, as he thought it was a strange attraction and dangerous too. She was in the middle of the road where cars were trying to pass, and she would lie there on the dark road just crying for help. After seeing her, Gail kept walking through the haunted park for a while and by the time he reached a few ambulance workers to tell them that he thought the actor on the road was a very dangerous stunt to be pulling, that was when they were like, there is no actors on the road. Can you imagine being this guy, hearing that, and realizing that you had just walked past a woman that was in need of help dying on the road? And what's even worse is that Kimberly actually died that night. Someone found her in her final moments and reported the death to emergency services. No one had any idea how long this poor woman was out there, slowly dying on the road after being hit by a car. But when paramedics finally got to her, she had suffered severe injuries to her skull, and she had sadly bled out from the trauma. After the investigation began, police believe that the accident occurred somewhere between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m. The only clues at the crime scene were a broken car mirror and red paint chips found on the road. Earlier on the evening of the accident, a man named Bruce Impt was over at J&G Sports Bar in East Granby. He had drank two scotch whiskeys and ate some cheese and crackers before heading home around 6.30pm on his drive home. 
he all of a sudden heard a loud thump. Apparently, he hadn't seen anything, and he thought it was just a pipe sticking out from a nearby pickup truck. Or maybe someone threw a brick at his car as a prank. But when he got home around 6.45, his wife Alma noticed her husband looked distressed. And when she asked him what had happened, he said someone had, you know, thrown a brick at his car while he passed by this haunted house. Alma told him to call the police, but Bruce thought it was just a Halloween prank, so he didn't bother. When he checked out his car, he also noticed that his windshield was cracked. He then moved the car into the garage and closed the door. The next morning, Bruce read a newspaper article about the hit-and-run accident where a woman had slowly died in the middle of the street. Bruce got a nauseous feeling in his gut, and he thought that he might have hit her, but he wasn't positive. Two days later, on Sunday, October 26th, Bruce and his family went to church, and during the ceremony, the minister said a specific prayer for Kimberly. Again, Bruce got a very sick feeling in his gut as he sat in the pew. He became scared and nauseous, but still he wasn't sure if he had actually hit her that night. As the days passed, he had a creeping suspicion that it really was his fault, but he still never called the police. The following Tuesday, he took the day off from work to take his car into the shop. Alma told him to take it to the garage they usually went to, but instead he drove the car all the way out to Albany, which was an hour and a half drive. Meanwhile, Kimberly's family reached out to local news outlets to ask the driver to come forward as they wanted closure on their loved one's death, but no one confessed. So police took the mirror and paint chips found at the scene to an automotive parts dealer, and they narrowed the make and model of the car down to a Buick or an Oldsmobile between 1991 and 1997. The State Department of Motor Vehicles gave police a list of these cars that were painted red and registered nearby. 250 cars came up. So 20 detectives divided up the addresses and searched door to door. One of the detectives' first stops was 24 Fawn Drive, East Granby, home of Bruce Imps. After asking him a few questions, he ended up turning himself in the next day. They charged him for evading responsibility and tampering with evidence. Two and a half years later, in May 2000, Bruce pleaded guilty and they sentenced him to five years. He ended up serving two years with five years probation. And later in 2009, Bruce passed at the age of 60 years old. Kimberly's tragic story is another example of people confusing fiction and reality at a haunted attraction. If Bruce had stopped, or if anyone had checked on her when she desperately needed help, her life might have been saved. Instead, Kimberly has become another victim of a haunted attraction disaster because everyone just thought her dying in the middle of the street was just part of the show. It turns out even more tame Halloween rides see their fair share of tragedy. On October 20th, 1990, out in Lakewood, New Jersey, locals rode on hay rides through streets decorated with haunted attractions. About 40 people, you know, would sit in a hay-filled wagon drawn by a tractor. We've all been on hay rides before. The company Ocean Haunted Hay Rides Incorporated set up a handful of stage performances where staff would dress up in costumes and pose for the rides as they went by. A 17-year-old named Brian Jewell was ready to set up his act. His job was to hold a fake noose up to his neck and make it look like he was hanging. Then he would talk to people after coming back from the dead. It was a prop rope and never meant to go around his neck. He would normally just stand there and give his haunted lines while the ride moved on. But as another hayride came along later in the night around 8pm, the guests noticed that Brian wasn't moving. His head was slumped downward and he didn't move. I mean, imagine as you're going by, you're seeing this. Your gut feeling is that this is a stage thing, like 
obviously haunted attractions oftentimes show you death scenes. And so that's exactly what people thought. They just thought that Brian was doing his job. But the employees operating the hayride knew right away that this was not right. Something was very, very wrong. The rope was designed to have a noose that never tightened, but not this time. Something had gone wrong. Even though Brian's feet were still touching the ground, he had put the rope around his neck. The noose tightened, and he accidentally strangled himself to death. As the hayride slowly passed by, his body hanged there, lifeless. After this horrible tragedy, the ride operators made no comment, and the attraction was shut down and never opened up in town again. As you can imagine, his death shocked everybody in this small town, especially the people that had witnessed his body hanging. It was supposed to be a fun night of apple cider and spooky hayrides, but it ended in death. Unfortunately, Brian Jewell wouldn't be the first worker to die in an attraction, and he wouldn't be the last. In 2016, there was a 45-year-old employee at Disneyland Paris who had a major accident in the Phantom Manor attraction. The unnamed worker was a longtime employee at Disneyland. Actually, they had first joined the team 14 years earlier, and he worked maintenance on the rides. The Phantom Manor has a theme similar to the Phantom of the Opera. And like other Disney haunted house rides, this one is filled with special effects. An Omni-Mover ride, where a row of mechanical chairs takes the riders through the haunted house. There's flashing lights and moving phantoms can be seen along the tracks. And with so many moving parts, maintenance was pretty common. So early in the morning, the man went in to repair a broken light fixture before the ride opened its doors. Moments later, other employees noticed a massive power surge inside the ride, and a loud bang rang out through the rooms. Not long after, they found the man's body on the floor near the broken light fixture. His skin had begun to melt, and steam rose from his body. He had actually died from an accidental electrocution, and the ride was shut down for several days to make sure there was no foul play involved. It was strange that an employee with so many years of experience made such a fatal mistake. Rumors even spread that he might have made the mistake on purpose to end his own life. Either way, some believe that after his death, his spirit now haunts the Phantom Manor ride, and he blends in with the special effects. The people that go on this ride now can't tell if they're seeing a prop or a real ghost, and the same goes for the flickering lights. Is it just all part of the ride? Or is it the ghost of the dead maintenance worker? His death was one more added to the list, as Disneyland Paris had already lost another employee to the It's a Small World ride six years earlier. And if you look back fast enough, you'll see the haunted attraction deaths have been around for as long as haunted attractions have been a thing. Back in 1957, Time Magazine ran one of their scariest and most disturbing stories to date. Out in the small farming community of Utica, Kansas, with a population of only 300 people, where the high school classes at the local school were literally only a handful of kids. And when the new school year came around, it was a long tradition that the senior class would haze the incoming freshman class. This was a known problem in the school, so Mrs. Betty Stevens, the English teacher, decided it was time for a change. Betty was also the sponsor of this year's senior class. Usually they just threw a party in the school's gym where the seniors would rough up the freshmen. But instead, this year, she talked with the principal about planning a pre-Halloween trip through a haunted house. It was only September, but they figured they could get the kids excited for the season this way, and the seniors could take the freshmen through the house one by one. Principal William Sally, age 60, was fully on board with the idea. He was so excited about the haunted house that he planned on fake hanging himself in a dark room 
so the kids would get a kick out of it. Betty rented out a farmhouse two miles outside of town, and there she placed paper mache skulls, deer bones, fake rattlesnakes, and other spooky decorations to get the place ready. And on the night of the event, all the seniors and freshmen met up at the farmhouse. Before Betty led the kids into the house, the principal got ready for his performance in the kitchen. He put splotches of black grease paint and ketchup all over his face and his clothes in order to make it look like he was dead. He put broken bottles, burlap sacks, and chains on the floor beneath him. Then he suspended himself up from the kitchen ceiling with a rope wrapped underneath his arms. It looked like the rope was actually wrapped around his neck, but it really was only wrapped around his chest. His feet were just above the floor as his body swung back and forth. The principal wanted it to look as real as possible. So one by one, the seniors led the freshmen into the haunted house. Weird groans and rattling chains could be heard through the walls. When they made their way into the kitchen, it was pitch black. The seniors then briefly shined a flashlight on the principal as he hung from the ceiling, moaning softly. After half the kids had made their way through the house, all the freshmen agreed that the hanging man in the kitchen was the scariest thing of all. Betty later decided to poke her head into the kitchen to get a picture of the principal. It was pitch black and she could only see his outline softly swinging back and forth. She then called out to the principal, but there was no answer. All she heard was his feet pushing around the broken bottles on the floor as he swung. When she turned the flashlight on Principal Sally's body, it just hung there motionless. He had accidentally slipped while adjusting the rope, and the noose slipped over his arms and up around his neck and he had just been slowly dying while the first few kids had shuffled through the farmhouse. And when Betty went to check on him, he had already died from strangulation. You can only imagine how horrible Betty felt about this, as she thought this was going to be this grand scare. This idea that she had come up with had actually ended up killing her principal. It was a night that the senior class of 57 would never, ever forget those are some absolutely horrifying and tragic accidents have occurred it blows me away that people even attempt to do a fake hanging i mean such a bad idea to try and do because there's always a possibility that a rope will slip and if it's in a noose i mean once you're in it it's very difficult to get out we're gonna go ahead and switch gears now and talk about two haunted houses in particular, starting with one that was known as the Colt, located in North Conway, New Hampshire. Outside the tragedy, sometimes haunted houses are just terrifying because they're good at what they do, and no one needs to end up dying for these places to really fuck you up. Out in North Conway, New Hampshire, there used to be a haunted attraction, so terrifying and disturbing that the owners eventually had to shut it down. It was called the Colt, and it was up in the cold mountains. Every guest had to walk through alone, and you had to be 18 years old or older to enter. Everyone was also required to sign waivers. Sounds familiar, right? And they were told that they would encounter violent and sexual situations. On top of that, the guests understood that they would also be touched by the staff. The creator, Lance Davis, said that the attraction definitely wasn't for everyone. It was for those who wanted the true experience of real-life terror. And this place was up in Mount Cranmore. 
It was usually cold and snowy up there, even in September when the attraction opened for the season. The freezing cold weather is the first thing that fucks with the guests before they get inside. Once they find the line to get in, they have to stand out in the cold. The line eventually ends at a gate where a man lets the guests onto the grounds. They're then brought to a debriefing area where they hand over their personal items and sit down. The man then asks if they've had any problems with darkness, heights, claustrophobia, eels, rats, bugs, needles, or being fully submerged in water. Next, he hands the guest the red card on a lanyard. He says if things get too intense, they can give up the red card, and the experience ends for them. The man then directs the guest to take a chairlift up towards another pathway. One at a time, though. Once on the chairlift, it moves at a snail's pace. You can imagine the anxiety just builds while the lift inches its way upwards. Biting cold winds rock the chair, and the guest remembers how the man asked if they were afraid of being submerged in water. Now, they're just worried about getting back, soaking wet in the freezing cold. And this is just one of the first things that a guest worries about on that long ride up. But the experience hasn't even truly started yet. When the chair finally reaches the top, a small path on the right cuts through a few trees and ends at a small, dark cabin deep in the woods. The sun begins to set and the wilderness becomes even darker. A disembodied voice calls out the guest's name, and it sounds like it's coming from the cabin. As they approach, a flashlight shines from the front porch. A man calls out and asks if the guest has ever done anything like this before. If the guest responds and the man yells and tells them to speak only when they tell them to. The man then grabs the guest and forces them into a small booth beside the cabin. He then turns them towards a wall and tells them, don't fucking move. He then puts a pair of headphones over their ears which muffles all nearby sound. As they stand staring at the wall, the man marches around. Apparently there are others in the nearby booths. The man screams at them telling them to stop moving and occasionally the man will drag another person into a booth or drag someone else outside. After what seems like an eternity, the headphones then get yanked off, and the guest is forced inside the cabin. A deranged doctor stands in the entryway, and he asks the guest how much they weigh. When they answer, he asks if they're lying. Then the doctor grabs a mysterious vial, opens the guest's mouth, and shoots a dose of mysterious liquid inside. From behind, a bag then comes down over the guest's head, and someone lifts them up off of their feet. They're then carried outside where they're thrown against a wall. With the bag still over their head, someone spreads open their legs uncomfortably wide. The voice of a man says not to move, and the torture session begins. Suddenly, a man's body pushes up against them, and the air is pressed out of their lungs. Their heart begins to pound inside of their ears. They still can't see what's happening because the bag is still over their head. When they're finally released, they're dropped into a wooden chair. Earmuffs are forced down over their ears once again, and the faint sound of water sloshing in a bucket can be heard. And in a moment, they're soaking wet in freezing cold wind after a bucket of water gets dumped all over them. After a while, the attacker's footsteps fade off into the distance. An ear-shattering thud then comes through the earmuffs when someone smacks the outside plastic ear cup. And in a flash of light, the earmuffs and bag are ripped off of their head. The voice of a woman comes through and says, follow the string. They're then shoved from behind toward a small tunnel that leads to a medical office. Inside a television plays loud static in the corner. 
To the right, a handful of medical instruments lie on a table beside a vial of what looks like urine and blood samples. Another doctor stands beside the table and tells him to take a seat. Just across the way, a video camera is pointed straight at the chair. They're being filmed, and the light from the camera is near blinding in the dark office. The doctor then pours a liquid that looks like urine inside a small Dixie cup, and he brings it to them and says, Drink. It's still warm. As they drink, it's salty and rancid. But the fear of what the consequences are if they don't listen is too great. After it flows down their throat, the doctor snaps on a pair of latex gloves and opens their mouth. He uses his fingers to poke around at their gums. Then he takes a few soggy cotton balls and shoves them into the sides of their mouth. A plastic bag drops down over their head, and the frantic breathing clouds up the inside so it's nearly impossible to see, along with the camera light shining in their eyes. The doctor lifts up one sleeve and the guest feels a sharp prick on their arm. The doctor then spreads blood all over the plastic bag as they bandage up the arm. He then bends down and leans in towards their ear before whispering, whatever he says, whatever he does, don't tell him where I put it. Before long, the session is over and the bag is removed from their head and they're quickly shoved through a second door. Inside a small dark room, quiet footsteps can be heard from behind. There's not enough time for their eyes to adjust to the pitch black room before a man begins to gently caress them while pulling them closer, smelling their hair and neck. They can feel his breath on their skin. In a split second, they're thrown into the next room. Death metal music blasts through hidden speakers. Chains and shackles hang from the walls and ceilings. In the corner of the room, a random victim is chained to a pole with a bag over their head. Standing in the center of the room is a captor, or the aggressor. He has no shirt on and his face is covered by an S&M leather dog mask. In his hands, he holds a collar and a leash. The man then approaches the guest, grabs him by the shoulders, and throws them down onto a soiled bed in the middle of the room. The attacker then pounces on top and tells them there are only two ways of making it out of here alive. Give up your red card, or fuck the devil. Then after a moment, he whispers, where did they hide it? The guest remembers the doctor's order so they keep quiet. Then the man begins searching their body, turning them over and patting them down. After a while, he gives up when he can't find what he's looking for. But he pulls out a bag, and again it goes over the guest's head. They can feel their wrists being bound with handcuffs that are looped through the headboard. The man asks, Are you afraid of bugs? And regardless of what they answer, the bag is lifted off their head, and the first thing they see is a man holding a cage filled with cockroaches. He reaches his hand inside and pulls out a cockroach. He then puts it up towards their face, and they see it squirm and reach out their tiny legs. The bag then comes back down over their head. The masked man takes off the guest's shoe and sock from one foot. They can't see what's happening, but they begin to feel the tiny legs of cockroaches moving up their leg. Further and further, this cockroach crawls up their leg until finally the man removes it, but it's not over yet. The man then pulls the bag up so they can see and asks if they want to give up the red card. If they wish to continue, the man drops the bag back over their head. But this time, a tingling feeling comes around their neck as the tiny legs of the cockroach climbing up to the guest's head. If the guest swears, screams, or speaks in any way, the bag is removed and the man will rip a bandage off of his own nipple and slap it into the guest's mouth. Only when the guest lays still and doesn't make a sound will the man finally remove this vile cockroach. Then he lifts them off the bed and pushes them against the wall. The 
bag comes off their head before they're forced into another tunnel. It's too short to walk down, so they have to crouch or even crawl down the way their sock and shoe are on the ground. And after putting them back on, they crawl through the rest of the tunnel that leads them to an old kitchen. The 1950s housewife rushes around getting ready for a tea party. She has a short, one-way conversation with the guest. Because if you remember, the guest is munching on a nipple bandage that's been put over their mouth. And then she says it's time for tea and cookies. But the teacups are empty. And when she brings in a plate of cookies, they're topped with dead cockroaches. A man then bursts into the kitchen holding a syringe that looks like it's filled with a white milky substance. After being injected with the syringe, they're manhandled into another room where it's dark and quiet compared to the rest of the cabin. A flashlight shines onto a handwritten note that says, 1. Find the bowl. 2. Get the key. and 3. Unlock the door. The flashlight goes out and the room is pitch black. Somewhere in this room, there's a bowl that has to be found. And after searching around with their hands, they pass around a few furry objects that feel like dead mice until they find a bowl. The bowl is filled with worms and they have to reach inside to grab the key. Once they get it, they're assaulted by another person in the room that snatches the key from their hand and then they're kicked out of the door. A silent girl stands in the next room and she opens a series of trap doors in the wooden floor and she points to where she wants the guests to go. The trap doors then lead down into an underground coffin. A fake spider sits inside but who knows if real spiders have also crept in. Once they lie down in the coffin, the trap door slams shut from above and the guest is now locked inside of this wooden coffin. Pitch black darkness now surrounds them. A few minutes pass and a loud bang is felt from underneath the coffin. It feels like it's being moved around until it comes to a stop. Then the door finally opens and the guest finds himself in a new room. A woman standing nearby orders them to crawl over to a chair on the opposite side of this room. Beside the chair is a table draped with a white sheet. And beneath the sheet, the outlines of different objects can be seen. The guests wonder what type of torture instruments are hidden beneath the sheet. And the woman then asks them to give up their red card. If they refuse, she says, then we'll have to mark you. The mysterious white sheet gets pulled off the table, revealing a machete, a blowtorch, and a branding iron. They give the guests a second to realize their impending doom. The woman ignites the blowtorch and begins heating up the end of the branding iron until it turns red with heat. From behind, a man then puts the guest into a headlock and asks if they're certain that they still want to go through with it. If they agree, the woman brings the branding iron closer and closer until they can feel the heat just inches away from their neck. Just before they're branded, a bag drops over their head. A metal object is pressed against their neck and a click goes off. The guy whispers in their ear, If you ever tell anyone about what happened here, we'll find you and kill you. The man then throws them out the door into the freezing cold. The bag gets ripped off their head and the man yells at them to get off his mountain. So they make their way back to the chairlift and head down into the freezing cold. They have a bloody bandage around their arm where the syringe pricked them and a black mark on their neck to remind them of the horrors that they just went through. And if they made it this far without giving up their card, the journey through the cold haunted house is finally over. Can you imagine going through the cult? I wonder if there's anyone out there who's listening, who has been through the cult themselves. I'd be interested to hear how accurate this sort of walkthrough I just gave really is. I know for me personally, I would not want to subject myself to this because I just know that like, yeah, this is real horror. This is real terror. 
And this shit will fuck you up. People that go through these extreme haunts most of the time come out with some sort of PTSD. I mean, it is that real that you you have so many moments of pure terror. Couldn't even imagine going through something like this. But there's another haunted house on the list that's known for its massive size and its terrifying attractions. But it's also known for its horrific past. The fucked up things that have happened here set a haunting foundation for everyone who steps inside. Originally named the Eastern State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic, the purpose of this hospital was to care for people with epilepsy and anyone with physical and developmental disabilities. It actually opened in November 1908, and they built the massive structure on an isolated piece of land out in the country. The main building is connected to smaller buildings through a tunnel system. It became a self-contained community along with its own power plant, farm, hospital, morgue, barbershop, and firehouse. And later it was renamed Penhurst State School and Hospital. Some of the more functioning younger people who lived there were taught trades and participated in orchestra and baseball. The early promotional pictures of the place made it seem like a fancy institution, but as time passed, the institution fell apart. They struggled with overcrowding and lined up beds with no space in between them. In the early 1900s, the institution attracted people who were interested in eugenics, so they began to house undesirable people there that believed they tainted America's gene pool. In 1913, people believed that the disabled were unfit to be citizens, and they also sent criminals, immigrants, and orphans to Penhurst. The idea behind this was to isolate these people and stop them from reproducing. Eventually, the popularity of eugenics began to fade away during World War II, but Penhurst was still overcrowded with residents. So they added more beds and more buildings throughout the years, but they still couldn't keep up. In the 1940s, 2,400 people lived there, and 1,500 were on a waiting list. By the 60s, it had its highest population of 4,100 people, and most were children. The understaffing and overpopulation of Penhurst made the living conditions absolutely horrific. A former patient, Roland Johnson, had lived there from 1958 to 1971, and he actually later wrote an autobiography that described the living conditions. According to him, he said the whole place smelled like a doghouse. Smelled like feces. Huge rats and roaches crawled all over the place. The walls and floors had holes. Human shit and piss covered the floors and droves of flies came in through the windows. In 1968, an expose opened up about the inhumane conditions. It was a five-part new series titled, Suffer the Little Children. Naked, starving children swayed back and forth or crawled up in balls. Children were seen tied to their beds. 80 children from the ages of 6 months to 5 years were stuffed into cages, where they would lie in their own feces for days. If that wasn't enough, patients also went through physical abuse. A class action lawsuit was brought against the institution. And one court document described patients getting attacked by other patients and also self-abuse. One patient was actually hospitalized for 2 weeks because they had been beaten in the head and face by another resident. One of the patients who stayed there for 11 years had been attacked several times. She actually lost several teeth, suffered a broken jaw, broken fingers, a broken toe, and countless cut scratches and bites. Sometimes it was the staff members who abused the patients too, as cruel punishments were very common. One patient bit another patient, so the staff member decided, you know what, let's just remove all their teeth. Supposedly this was a common punishment because to this day, people still find teeth lying in the tunnels. Another man served as part of a civilian public services program in the 1940s. 
He went in there for 20 months and by the end he called it a concentration camp. The patients that seemed to get better were sent to a U cottage after they broke a rule. He called this the slave house. There they would tie the patients' hands to steam pipes and beat them endlessly. Then the patients had to provide free labor for the institution. Meanwhile, the director, person who ran this institution, was an alcoholic. And many people who were in charge of the U cottage were also alcoholics. Even the assistant attendants were known as rum bums. And as time went on, conditions rarely got better. In 1976, a staff member raped a patient. Another staff member stabbed a patient with a set of keys, and another was whipped by a shackle belt. The massive lawsuit in 1977 eventually ruled in favor of the residents. But despite this, the institution stayed open. So the abuse just continued. In one year alone, there were 833 minor and 25 major injuries reported at the institution, and that was just what was reported. One reporter witnessed a woman smear shit on herself just so she could finally get a shower. In 1983, nine current and former Pennhurst employees were indicted for charges of beating and abusing patients. One staff member alone had abused nine individual patients. Another staff member got the patients to attack each other just for entertainment. All employees involved were fired, but one of the staff members later got her job back. By 1984, a final lawsuit closed this insane institution for good. Over the years, parts of the institution have been sold off. Part of it serves as a veteran's home, which blows my mind, and a National Guard armory. But in 2010, controversy stirred up when the Penhurst Haunted Asylum attraction opened on the grounds. Many people were very, very disturbed about opening an attraction where so many real-world horrors had happened. But others were thrilled when a real historic asylum opened its doors to the public Supposedly, paranormal phenomenon had also crept in. And it now has a reputation of being the most haunted place in Pennsylvania, and one of the most haunted places in the entire world. Disembodied voices have often been heard, especially in the tunnels, and shadowy figures cross through hallways and empty rooms. It's believed that these are the spirits of the patients who suffered so terribly there. For these patients, they might be doomed to suffer here forever. When the haunted attraction opened in 2010, some of the visitors thought the main building didn't even need to be decorated. It was scary enough as is. People are now allowed inside in groups. Most nights, they have several lights on. But for two exclusive nights, guests can wander through in complete darkness. There are several different attractions on the grounds like the morgue and the Mayflower Hall, which is supposedly the most naturally haunted place in the Institute. But most people come for the asylum. Here's just a little taste of some footage of people going through this haunted asylum. The actors, the actors will be touching you. You cannot touch them. Um, there's no fire, that means no smoke. All right, Evan, right. you going first? Yeah, let's go backwards. All right, fine. Oh, we're there. Oh, my God. I used to be just like everybody else. I used to wake up and go to work every single day at the same time. Come here. 
Get some neat. Cory looks good, not me. <laughs> this is fucking terrifying. Oh my fucking god. Holy shit, dude. It's set up as the home of the world's most dangerous criminally insane, and this is the maximum security wing. Many of the rooms are set up like prison cells, and inside actors are dressed up like depraved, hostile patients, screaming and harassing the visitors. The goal is to make it through the maximum security wing, through the maze of cells, and reach the end. It begins like an innocent tour through the building, but it quickly descends into madness. Once they're in too deep, they need to escape as fast as possible. Further inside, inmates have broken free from their cells and they run through the halls and approach the guests. They look filthy and deranged and they try to get the guests committed to the asylum. Each room is absolutely disgusting. The walls are peeling and the ceilings are stained. It's hard to tell if the century-old building is naturally like that or if it was decorated. The haunt takes place on two floors of the building and the maze of rooms goes through patient bedrooms, bathrooms, community showers, and examination rooms. Some of the rooms are real padded cells that were left there since the real asylum days. Even though the people found inside aren't actual patients, they do seem crazy enough. For most haunted house experiences, the people inside jump out and yell to get a cheap scare, but inside the asylum, they act like real deranged patients. One might be walking around in circles talking to themselves. Another might just stare at you from the corner while trapped in a straitjacket. But if someone decides to grab you and scream in your ear, they can do that too as this haunted asylum is a complete hands-on experience, and many have never seen anything like it. The fact that it's inside what was once a real asylum adds a whole nother layer to the creepiness. And that's what some people are looking for when they come to a haunted house, as you're looking for that real element of fear. I think ultimately, for many of us, there's something that is so thrilling about being scared. I know that I definitely like to be scared, but I don't want to be tortured. You know what I mean? Like experiencing jump scares or even having people touch you, perhaps. I think haunts that do a really good job at scaring you. I don't think you necessarily need to like touch people and torture people to, to scare people, right? There, there are ways to scare people in other ways. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the actual environment that you're going through. A lot of times haunted houses and attractions that I've been through the whole time, I'm just like, this is this is fake, right? You're just like actors, the props, the decorations. You know, they do their best to make them look real. And obviously, depending on where you go, the budget's different. And so the higher the budget, obviously, the more real they can make things. I mean, so many times I've gone through and I, I'm like laughing through. I'm literally laughing when I'm getting scared because I think for me, I'm realizing that they're trying to scare me. But ultimately, it's funny to me as opposed to like actually scaring me. Especially as I got older into my teenage years, I definitely was like way less scared. And I think also the more if you're into horror movies and just that type of content, I think you do desensitize yourself to a lot of this. And so when you do go through and you do see these things, it's not such a shock to you. You're more you're more like, oh, that's cool. Like that looks really cool. And so your reaction is different to somebody who has never seen the scenes that are often in these haunts before. And so they're actually experiencing more of a real element of fear. And I think that's really the difference. And so I understand why people seek out the extreme haunts where they're willing to put themselves in a situation to experience actual fear because nothing else is going to give you that other than the, the real thing essentially. So I totally understand 
why the Penhurst Asylum would be an excellent place to do a haunted attraction because there is more of that real element in play here. I mean, you're dealing with a place that is likely extremely haunted due to its horrific past. I do also understand some people being upset that, you know, a place where so many people went through basically hell is now this fun attraction. I get it. Like I get the the feelings about that. And I think it's tough because I think either way, you know, depending on who you are, it could be really exciting to you while also being really disturbing to you, which I, I think there it's a little it's a little insensitive to basically like reenact what actually happened there. It'd be one thing if they completely switched it up and did a totally different sort of feel to it, a totally different storyline versus having patience and things like that and just making it an asylum, which it basically was that in real life. I, I totally get that. But I do see why people seek out places like that because again the environment the atmosphere that's what really gets me in so many horror movies where it's just jump scares you're just like you expect it to happen so it doesn't actually scare you it startles you sometimes maybe you jump and you're like okay good one but i think the most i think what's scariest and i think for example a movie that did a really good job with that recently was barbarian is you don't need necessarily cheap scares but if you can create the atmosphere and really immerse somebody in a world where you feel scared just based on what you're walking into like i know i've been through haunts in the past where just the scene that you're walking into in the the sounds and the the way that the lighting is and and strobe lights always always fuck me up i don't know about you but anytime i go into a haunt there's fucking strobe lights i'm like god damn it like damn it like why because that's one of those things that because it just everything moves in slow motion and i absolutely hate that I hate it, but I also love it because it does allow me to feel a bit scared when I see creepy figures moving through and it's you feel like you're moving in slow motion. I, I like things like that where the environment's really pulling you into the experience and you're feeling scared. And like there's a there's another extreme haunt out there called Blackout. And I can totally see why that would be extremely scary because you're alone for one, which any haunt where you have to go through alone definitely definitely elevates the level of fear versus going in with a group right where you're like kind of walking behind each other which many of us have done that and you know that's fun because you get to watch your friends get scared and you know uh you go with your girlfriend or your significant other and and you watch them scream and get scared and you know it's kind of funny to you but to go through an extreme haunt solo now that's a whole different level i've never done an extreme haunt solo I've thought about it before, but ultimately I don't think I'll ever go through it because I feel like places like blackout McKamey manor, you are going to fuck yourself up. Like you, you might be able to stay strong and fucking t- keep telling yourself over and over again, that this is going to end. This is fake. And maybe you're mentally tough enough to go through it. But I think ultimately when you're in a situation like that and they break you down, like that's what they're trying to do is break you down, dehumanize you. I think most people are going to break in that circumstance and you're going to, you're going to come out of that with some trauma for sure. So just for that reason, I probably would never do something like that. And also I think, I think one of the most disturbing things to me about some of the extreme haunts and I don't, I don't understand why they do this because it's just, I mean, I, I get why they do it, especially for women that go through it is like the sexual assault aspect, the rape that they do in it is just like the simulated rape, I guess. That to me is just like, that's crossing the line. I don't, I don't agree with that. I don't like it. And 
I don't want to support attractions that use that as a scare tactic because I think that's just super fucked up. And because obviously people go through that in real life. And why would you take something that's so horrific and just fucking terrible to try and, and flip it around and make it this like scare experience or like put somebody through that? Because that is like when you're touching people inappropriately and fucking, you know, showing people acted out scenes of that. I think that's just, that's just crossing the line. I don't enjoy that. I don't think that's fucking cool and I don't get it, but to each their own, I guess. But it is crazy to think that there aren't more tragedies that happen in haunted houses. Honestly, I know people get punched all the time. You know, sometimes you have a uh, instant reaction. You just want to punch people. I know I've pushed people before. I've had people uh, grab onto me and I've like spun around and almost hit them. Obviously you get thrown out if that's the case, but the fact that every now and then people take advantage of places like this. I'm surprised there's not more things that have happened where people use these attractions to carry out crimes. Like that's scary to think about. I mean, the amount of people that go and wait in line for this, thank God some of them do have metal detectors. Cause that's just, that's scary to think about. Or what if you, you know, you don't know who these people are working for the haunts. I mean, you are assuming that whoever runs this haunt has background checked these individuals and that these individuals aren't you know, aren't criminals, aren't people capable of actually hurting someone. And as we've learned with McCamey Manor, I mean, he, he gets a lot of people that have a criminal past. And so that's scary to think about. So just be safe out there. Look into the, you know, obviously the attractions that have been running for years are a lot more safe and, you know, the larger ones where they're inspected and regulated and things like that are much better than some of these little offshoot ones like I grew up in a small town and we had a farmhouse sort of situation like that. And it was just run by some locals. It wasn't like an official business or anything. And so sometimes you got to worry about safety in those and who's actually working them. But ultimately haunted attractions are supposed to be fun. It's supposed to get your blood pumping. It's supposed to get your adrenaline going. But at the end of the day, you should absolutely be coming out of those. Okay. Able to come back to reality and hopefully you've enjoyed yourself. So, I'm curious though, have any of you out there experienced either the cult or the Penhurst Asylum? I'd be very, very interested to know. You can let me know in the comments if you're watching on YouTube, which make sure you're subscribed. It's an easy way to support the show. Spotify, you can actually watch a video version of the show, which is cool, especially for this episode. Make sure you're following us there. I'd really appreciate it. But you can also let us know on social media at Lights Out Cast. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Let us know. Have you been through these? Have you heard of any of these haunted attraction disasters? I would definitely be curious to know. But now I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. I really enjoyed this one. And next week I've got a very special Halloween episode for you as well as a bonus episode coming. So two, two episodes for you the week of Halloween. Look forward to that. Thanks again for joining me. Until next time. Lights out. Everybody. Everybody.